in today's environment, if your asset manager is living off the returns of the loans, not the fees on the capital in which they've deployed and put those loans in, but the actual loans themselves, meaning the house is partaking in every single credit transaction you do and owns it, that cures a lot of ails. Magically, what you'll find is when folks commit their own capital to each specific asset, that level of alignment is material because folks choose to be more careful with their own money as opposed to others. That was John Bach. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode five of season two of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, real estate, and more. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so the latest episode is in your podcast queue every other week. On today's show, I spoke with John Bach, a managing director within Bearings Global Private Finance Group and the chief financial officer of Bearings BDC, a publicly listed business development company. In the conversation, we spoke about common mistakes investors are making when allocating to private credit. These include putting too much emphasis on the past performance of the asset class, assuming the size of a manager is the only thing that matters, not fully understanding the risks managers are taking to achieve returns and the incentive structures that drive their actions, and finally, failing to recognize What is marketed as senior debt often is something quite different. We explore these concepts and more in this episode. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with John Bach. All right, John Bach, welcome to the show. (laughs) Craig, it's good to be here. Excited to have you here. I've wanted to have you on this show really since you joined the firm. So oh it's uh, excited to finally sit down and do this. Um, maybe let's start there. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, what you were doing uh, prior to Bearings and, and your role today. Uh, well, maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll answer those questions in reverse. Uh, so um, my current position now, I am the, the Chief Financial Officer of Bearings BDC. So this is a ticker. BBDC. It's a mm-hmm. publicly traded business development company. So it's a company that makes loans uh, to middle market businesses. And um, I've been doing that since uh, June of 18 when mm-hmm. I came over. Mm-hmm. I'm also the CFO of two other permanent capital vehicles, uh, Bearings Corporate Investors and Bearings Participation Investors, okay. uh, tickers uh, MCI and MPV. And so really I've, I've developed a focus in permanent capital and private credit. Now that that private credit and permanent capital focus came over the last, oh my gosh, 15 plus years mm-hmm. of um, being an LP. Yeah. Right, meaning a, a sell-side analyst that did nothing but research the uh, private credit and uh, middle market uh, yes. space and the form of a business uh, development company uh, research. My, my last uh, position was at Wells Fargo. So can you imagine anything more boring than writing research 
Uh, no, no, not at all. In fact, your your uh, reputation preceded you uh, in joining this firm. I and I think a lot of other people here read your research religiously uh, when you were with Wells Fargo. So you know, Greg, you know what that means. What's so, that? so that basically means that there are really three people that had read that research. So, <laughs> so Greg, yourself, and then yeah. my mom and dad. So, uh, so thank excellent. you. Thank okay. you for that. Yeah, sounds very similar to this show. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, so let's let's get into it here. We're we're talking today about uh, mistakes investors make in private credit. So, um, for our listeners, John uh, recently published a piece uh, aptly named Four Mistakes Investors Make in Private Credit." and how to avoid them. So uh, we will likely refer to this piece a few times during the course of this podcast. Uh, so I would definitely recommend listeners going to bearings.com. You can find that paper under viewpoints. So I would definitely check that out. So John, let's start kind of at the top. Why did you write this paper? Uh, well, one, I, I have uh, roughly a year and a half of pinup uh, LP in me, okay. right? Number one, also now sitting inside on the, on the GP side. But most of all, it's pretty simple. I saw a lot of folks continue to make the same mistakes. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so um, while uh, it's pretty simple that, uh, you know, you try to avoid credit losses and, and understand, and, you know, what makes a private credit manager great versus what doesn't, um, I really tried to break down some core concepts. And in breaking down those core concepts, you know, found that lots of folks were interested in the mistakes they were making even if they continued making them. Sure, so I sure. said, well, let's uh, let's take some ideas and put them to print. And it's been good to do that and did it in paper form. Yeah. Now we'll do it in podcast form. Yeah. And you you talk a little bit about root versus fruit issues in that piece. What do you actually mean by that? So, you know, what I always find interesting is just like when you treat a sickness, right? You can treat the symptoms or you can treat the underlying cause or the problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What you start to find is a lot of folks focus on the symptoms and trying to figure out ways to effectively uh, protect themselves, right? Do I have a manager that's focusing on, you know, proprietary investments? Do they have the ability to originate X, Y, or Z or have great credit underwriting, et cetera? All sounds great. Those over over time are, are symptomatic to true root issues. Mm -hmm. and, and when I talk about root, get to the core, the core of, of whether someone's a true principal investor versus a true credit asset manager. There's a big distinction. Mm -hmm. Second would be, for example, if you have a, um, incentives and how you effectively incent folks to make the right loan sure. in this environment, those root issues permeate everything. So the goal is... You focus on the root, not the fruit. Now, the interesting thing is root issues require a lot of math, a lot of focus, mm -hmm. and in some cases can feel pretty difficult when you're having to ask tough questions to your managers or to our clients out there. Ask them of us. So in this piece, John, you lay out a number of the mistakes that, that investors are making in this asset class. So let's dive right into them. So the first mistake that you've identified is you think that investors are potentially assuming that past is prologue in this asset class. So tell me, what do you mean by this? Well, so what you have to do is look at the underlying fundamental right changes that have occurred in the private credit or middle market asset class, and then ask yourself, have this changed so much uh, that it might end up changing the future performance relative to what's happened in the past? And mm -hmm. so we outline mm -hmm. this in the paper. So lots of folks love to go around and raise capital by saying, look at how strong 
our private credit or middle market performance is relative to broadly syndicated sure, loans. Sure. We outline that there, and you can see that defaults or loss rates uh, were in effect lower mm -hmm. than their liquid counterparts. And, and what was the big driver behind that? Well, a lot of folks outline the fact that you had lower leverage at that point in the cycle. And so when you were making a loan that had a lower level of leverage, you found that um, after you went through the soup in 2009 and markets started to recover, companies could effectively get out from the lower debt burden, effectively refinance or sell themselves, and in effect, that debt got repaid. Mm -hmm. And so you ended mm -hmm. up earning um, a good return, right? Because they were effectively able to pay you back. Here's the problem. Uh, as a lot of money has come into this asset class, as there's been a substantial amount of, of interest in the private credit space, you start to find that both the terms, the covenants, as well as the leverage levels mm -hmm. are very similar to what you are, are looking at in the liquid market. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, when you think of addbacks as well as some of the deteriorating points as it relates to credit quality or, or willingness to over leverage certain deals, you might not be looking at the same credit profile right, that you were in 2008 right. or nine. And so it's really hard to say, no, no trust me, we're great managers. Look yeah. at how well we've done when the future is it, it dramatically different than how it was in the past. Got it, got it. So it's way too simplistic to look at the performance of the last 10 years when so many dynamics, including leverage levels and what covenants look like and all that kind of stuff, have changed dramatically over the course of that time. Well, I mean, I, I guess the question I'd ask if I, as a enterprising LP for a long time is, um, should I really base the next 10 years of performance based on how you've done? Mm -hmm. Interestingly, folks understand that it's something to pay attention to, but they also understand that that you know what's the one item that always shows up in every single one of the marketing disclosures that occurs, either here or elsewhere? Past performance is not indicative Absolutely. of future results. Yep, we're very familiar with that, and we have our compliance <laughs> colleagues with us here today, exactly. so we know it well. Turning to the second mistake that you've identified here, I thought this one was really interesting. Um, you assert here that that basically investors may be putting too much emphasis on the size of a manager. So differentiating solely based on size. Now, that's interesting to me because when I think about a size of a manager's platform, uh, I all things equal, I kind of think, you know, bigger is better. You've okay. got access to more deals, you have ex, you know broader set of expertise across the capital structure, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, you're having a larger amount of capital to put to work potentially enables you to negotiate better terms. So I would think there's a lot of positives there, but tell me what what's the flip side of that coin? Well, so you know, when you think of differentiation, if someone walks in and says their capital is what differentiates you, mm -hmm. we all understand that capital is an effective commodity. Right, lots of folks can, can have capital. And when I would sit across from LPs, a number of these large CIOs would come across to me and say, you know, I'm not here to reward a manager for raising capital. Mm. I'm here to, to, to reward a manager for actually deploying and investing it appropriately. So what you start to find is that size, at least for us and others, that actually can and does become the enemy of return. How, because how, how so? Well, think about it in a permanent capital context. The bigger you get, the more you have to feed. 
the more you feed, the more you're likely, given to the extent you have a very limited frame of reference, you're going to feed something that's inappropriate because the monster is always looking for new origination. Now, I know it sounds great that you can manage that risk. I'm here to say that over the last 15 years, I haven't seen managers work with larger dollar amounts. Mm -hmm. It's very, very difficult. Okay. And while it sounds nice, where we start to think of differentiation, it needs to move past the, the level of we can write big checks. Everyone can. It's large table stakes. And so actually, I'll ask you a question, Greg. Mm -hmm. So here's the, here's the question. How many folks in the market can write a $100 million check or more in private credit? Take a guess. Uh, well, I would say five, 10. Answer is 37. Mm, All right. Yeah. So what you understand is you have to have those capabilities to be scaled, to be large, and to be relevant to your private equity mm -hmm, sponsors. Mm -hmm. But let's stop short of the fact that saying capital itself is the differentiator. Where we start to see differentiation comes through diversity. And diversity you know, means a number of different things. We like to outline something called frame of reference. And so we walk, about, walk through this in the paper. You know, For example, if you have a very well-respected private credit origination team, but that private credit origination team also sits alongside other very well-trained and very well-scaled investment teams in both distressed, structured credit, private ABS, liquid credit, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that team gets informed by all their decisions. So when you are when you have a wide frame of reference, you don't lose focus. Yeah. What you find is you find attractive ability to price loans appropriately relative to the opportunity set. And I'll give you a, I'll give you a good example. I think we outlined this in the paper, and this is where frame of reference matters. So let's think about uh, market volatility back in the uh, latter part of 2018. Liquid markets blow out, right? Spreads on single Bs go to 600 over. Well, the question you'd start to ask is if, if a liquid loan at $100 million in EBITDA plus that was all very attractive, all these companies have reasons to exist, all mm -hmm, we hear about mm -hmm. you know, the time, right? Well, if you could invest in that asset at 600 over LIBOR, why on earth would someone want to be writing a private credit ticket at L475 to a 30 or $40 million EBITDA company? Sure, sure. And the answer is you wouldn't. But here's the problem. If all you focus on is a very limited frame of mm -hmm. reference, you will still do that loan regardless of whether or not it's appropriate for end investors. Thankfully, large scaled, and by the way, scaled and integrated are different things. Scaled and integrated firms avoid making that loan pricing mistake because the one things that we're taught, and I would always tell that LP should always expect is never shall, and I'll actually put this in a 10 commandment form, right? Thou shalt not take liquid term and liquid price mm -hmm. and put it into something that you can't sell. Yeah. Just because a middle market or a private credit loan isn't marked doesn't mean it doesn't have credit risk. The third mistake that you talked about uh, in this piece is uh, an interesting analogy. You say that investors sometimes are focusing too much on the sizzle and not enough on the stake. So explain this to me and tell me what are some of the most common sizzle statements oh, yeah. that LPs hear yeah. from GPs coming in their door. So to the LPs that hear this, I just imagine, I want you to think in your mind, think of all the private credit managers you've met and um, think about what they tell you as the reasons 
that you should invest in them. Mm-hmm. All right. So everyone's thinking here for a moment, right? Well, you know, so uh, as an LP, here's what I would always hear. Oh, proprietary assets. Course, oh, 100%. All homegrown, lead, co-lead, origination. You know, we do it all. all that way. Size. Oh, we're enormous, right? Have the ability to write $500 million or billion dollar mm-hmm, checks, mm-hmm. right? Then you've got other ones that are, oh, we do our own quality of earnings diligence. Our private equity diligence, which is actually kind of funny when they say like private equity style diligence, isn't it just like diligence? But, <laughs> you know, so, oh, unbelievable diligence. Mm-hmm, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Sponsors love our, our relationships are better than anyone else. We have XYZ, right? Um, sponsors love our haircuts. It's amazing, right? So <laughs> Outside of the haircuts, you're describing most of the pitch books I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> actually, believe it or not, there's some pretty interesting haircuts in space. <laughs> so, so that's what you hear. And and that sounds nice, just like that sizzle when a steak comes out from you when when Greg when you and I eat at the Ponderosa, right? When that comes out <laughs> and you hear that sizzle, it sounds great. How referenceable and quantitative is that in truly understanding yeah, as a manager? Quality? It's difficult, but you know what? Ninety five percent of a manager's time is trying to get you to focus on the sizzle items as it approaches a steak. So mm-hmm. what we would try to say is steak items that matter, we just given our background, we love math, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I love math. Um, you know, I, I get teased for it. But when you start to look at, at underlying math and core, uh, uh, core, I'll, I'll call it concepts of, of return and hurdles, et cetera, you start to find things that get really, really important really fast. I'll give you an example. So what happens? Let's just imagine you're an LP, Greg, and someone sit down. Mm-hmm. And you're probably going to say, why don't you just ask me, Mr. Manager, what are you going to make for me? What, uh, what sort of return can you earn from me? Ah, okay. So then everyone's going to get excited, and the LP is going to say, Greg, I'm going to make you 10%. Right? Oh, yeah. Sounds great. Right. Well, so here's what happens. The discerning LP takes what I just said and takes it a step further. They go, all right, all right, thanks, John. I'm looking forward to that. Now, you promised me 10 what do you need to lend at mm-hmm. to make what you've just promised right. me? That's the key question. And once you get into that focus and form of alignment, math becomes your ally because you understand the leverage, you understand the fees, you understand whether the manager scrapes on assets or not. And you can start to reverse engineer what they need to deploy at to generate your risk return. Mm-hmm, and so we mm-hmm. outline that, believe it or not, in the paper. Yeah, so in the paper, John, I think you've actually laid out really nicely uh, in a formula. I think it's the return on assets uh, <laughs> formula. So yeah. so explain that equation to me uh, to the extent that you can here. So, so it's pretty referenceable, but it just gets to the fundamental point, which is you know what, what uh, a manager's cost is, management fee, you know what they're going to leverage at. You know their cost of borrowing. You can end up reverse engineering exactly what you need, meaning that the return on asset that's needed to generate what they just promised you. And so I'll actually point to a few examples we outlined in the paper. All right. Uh, who's excited to talk math, right? So, so here <laughs> you have, let's just imagine there's a manager that charges on gross assets 15 basis points, private credit-wise. Okay. And they're going to lever at 1.25 times, and they're going to generate an 8% ROE. They charge a 12.5% incentive fee over LIBOR, right? And effectively, what they're trying to manage is just credit spread relative to loss. Okay. That manager, to generate your 8% ROE, and just outlines it in the paper, 
can originate a loan at L426. Okay. All right. So let's contrast that to some others, right? Whether you're taking up front fees into, or more importantly, and just let's use another example of a management structure of one and a half percent base fee and 20% incentive fee over six. That same manager to generate your return of 8%, Greg, has to lend at nearly L590 in order to generate that exact same mm. return. Mm. So what you start to find is, is that what's the difference between an L426 loan and an L500 or L590 loan? Um, clearly my colleagues, Adam Wheeler and Ian Fowler, who had an unbelievable co podcast before, they'd probably say it's 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 risk, right? Sure, Whether it's sure. leverage or yeah, poor yeah. company, et cetera. It really ends up getting the point where have the incentive structures you've put on your manager given them the willingness and ability to make the right loan. And sadly, not a lot of time spent focused on stake. A lot of time is, hey, you know, let's talk about proprietariness mm -hmm, and originations. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we'd probably land the plane by saying this. Most of the time, LPs like to think about fees in terms of their return. I'm here to say, think about your fees in relation to your risk because the manager is going to deploy the capital. If I give my uh, daughter $5 to go buy candy at the store, she never returns with change. <laughs> same is same exists with, uh, with, with asset managers that have your money. And also she's going to make sure that what she buys is going to give her maximum utility, right? For her right now, it's chewing gums and ring pops. So what you'll find is that manager is going to end up deploying the capital relative to their true costs. And once you start focusing on math, Math is way better. Steak is way better than the sizzle. So. Yes, yes. Okay, great, great. Well, thank you for, for laying that out. And again, um, if you didn't follow any part of that explanation, uh, I would definitely point you to the paper where it's laid out very clearly. So this, this point around you need to dig beneath the headline return number that is promised to see actually what managers are being incentivized the loans they're being incentivized to make is extremely important. So Good I would point, definitely point people there. Okay, John. So the the final mistake that you've laid out in the paper is, is very much related to uh, the incentives that you've been talking about here, um, and, and potentially a misalignment of incentives. So uh, that's that's the the concept that senior doesn't always mean senior, and and this is this is something that that folks have heard us talking about already on on podcasts with with Ian Fowler and oh, Wheeler. There's a party right there, uh, absolutely, and it, and it's but it's a concept that keeps coming up. So so it's one that uh, clearly is top of mind for for you and the team. So so maybe just take us through that concept that senior doesn't always mean senior so so let's break it down we're talking about the math problem right uh, so let's imagine you're a manager that has chosen improper incentives or promised folks too much and now you have to originate at l590 to make what you promised investors right okay. all right well let's imagine the true market for boring is beautiful, four and a half times levered, well-documented, $30 million in EBITDA companies, the senior market there is L475. Well, what do you do, right? Your cost is mm -hmm. not going, or, or your required return is not where the market is. So you can do a few things. A, you can pile into junior debt, 
sounds great, right? Let's just take some more risk, right? You'll get more incremental spread. But clients are going to look at it going, well, this late in the cycle, do you really want to be taking a lot of junior debt? I'm mm-hmm. not really mm-hmm. not really sure. So they, they'd see junior debt show up on your books. B, you just miss, right? You can be like, sorry, guys, market is what it is. I have promised you that, but it ain't mm-hmm. going to work. Right? Okay. Or C, you can redefine what senior is to, in effect, take more junior debt risk inside the senior wrapper, but you get to call it senior. And this is where definitional shift and change matters a lot because investors don't always catch it. So for example, right, if they see a large unit tranche, and I think my colleagues have kind of outlined this in previous examples, when you have debt in excess of seven and a half or even eight times leverage on a company, it's hard to say that all the risk inside that structure is true mm-hmm, first mm-hmm. lien senior risk. But you know what shows up on an SOI, which is a statement of investments? It says senior secured. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is why you can't always assume that senior isn't always senior because what you're finding is math is forcing folks to effectively redefine what it is to earn higher spread on investments. And our big fear is that when there's a mass euphoria of doing these types of loans, you end up mispricing that risk materially. You start thinking that really it is all senior. And when we realize that true first lien senior loans at roughly four and a half times, consider that the Mendoza line for a baseball uh, Mm -hmm, reference, mm Boy, when you start getting deeper into that stack and still pricing it close to L500, boy, that starts to get pretty bad pretty fast. Yeah, and you've illustrated this in a really simple chart in the the paper as well um, that just shows the traditional first lien, second lien structure and what uh, loss and recovery rates would look like and then contrasting that with what does a Unitron structure look like? And to your point, if a Unitron structure is being marketed as senior, clearly if it includes the first and second lien, your it's loss and recovery risk. rates are going to be and, much different. And that's kind of the that's kind of the, the the easy point, and you can see see it there is clients are conditioned to think that first lien senior deals are going to maintain seventy percent on average recoveries, mm-hmm, right? Because mm-hmm. you're the dollar one lender, you're gonna you're you're large and in charge. Well, what happens is is Folks will still see that you're senior, you are dollar one, but when you lend deeper into the stack, enterprise value of that company does not change. And when enterprise value falls, it will fall beneath the value of the dollars that you've lent. So your loss rates on that senior piece are higher. It's you get to the point of just math, it is just math. And so you start to ask yourself this question. If folks that have raised material amounts of capital, um, have grown materially, and are looking for ways to deploy it, what would you do if you were a large credit asset manager? It's pretty easy to write a large Unitronch ticket to cure a lot of ales. And if that requires you to misprice the junior debt in the stack, that's what folks might do. All right, John, you've given us a lot to think about, a lot to consider here today, probably a lot of 
brushing up on our math skills oh, to do man. as well. I know I personally need to do that, but fortunately <laughs> your paper helps. And uh, just one more reminder to folks to go to bearings.com, look under viewpoints, and you'll find the paper that we've mentioned several times, four mistakes investors make in private credit and how to avoid them. So as we finish up here, John, uh, I'm curious, any parting words of advice that you would have for our listeners, particularly as they're thinking about navigating the months and years ahead in this asset class and more broadly, especially given all the volatility we're seeing in, in public markets today. Oh yeah. Um, what would what would you leave people with today? I'll give just a, a theme that I think it's really important because whether it's COVID-19 or whether it's the dramatic change in folks and the wealth that's been created for certain credit asset managers as they've just grown materially. Um, one concept always centers LPs, and that relates to focusing on folks that are principal investors first, credit asset managers second. And I'll outline the distinction. If you're a credit asset manager and your net worth is built entirely on effectively raising funds and receiving the fees off of those funds, and you have a very monochromatic focus, you will start to find that you will originate assets that maybe you would have not otherwise done if you had to own that same asset yourself, meaning LPs taking all the risk. Granted, I have some risk in the form of uh, potentially lower incentive fees, but boy, it's pretty easy to think that you can start originating with your LP dollars as opposed to your own money. Here's the flip side. Principal investor starts with their capital first. Not their clients, not their capital in a fund, but every asset committing to it and owning it on their own balance sheet. When you have that level of alignment at the asset level, you start to find that the credit risk uh, and more importantly, the underlying risk return decisions become dramatically different than one who's entirely credit asset management focused. So, you know, to think about the quip that sunlight effectively stops the growth of bacteria, mm -hmm. principal investment first, owning it for the house, owning it yourself in size, that is, I'll call arguably the first and last line of defense. That is a root issue. And that's one that I can't stress enough about. So where you find that level of principal investor, I'd argue that, you know, if, if I was an LP, you hold on to that and you hold on to that like a bulldog on a bone. Yeah. Yeah. So the principal investors, to use another analogy, we've been talking a lot about root and fruit and steak and sizzle. Oh, yeah. Principal Everybody's investors. Hungry. Everybody's I'm, hungry. We're doing this yes. right before lunch too. So <laughs> we're all starving, but, uh, yes. but the principal investors are eating their own cooking essentially. And I think that's that alignment of interests message. Now, how you eat your own cooking, remember, it's the assets, not the funds, yeah. the assets. Right. It starts with an individual loan and is that loan, and where is that loan owned with the house capital? Yeah, yeah. 
So I think that's a that's a powerful uh, message to to end on today. So, so John, thanks for your insights. Thanks for talking us through uh, some of what you've written here in this piece. Um, it's been great, and uh, and I look forward to you know getting you back on the show again uh, sometime soon. To the extent that you guys do send Greg feedback, um, you know, if you could just say this was incredibly boring. I appreciate that. <laughs> thanks again, John. Thanks for your thanks time. Appreciate it. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to episode five of season two of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you're the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.